Hello, this is UU Talk Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you're listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. Workers' Words by Will Baker. Talk so straight there is no fancy, just sense. A poet sure couldn't hang it better. Nouns like bolts or nails, scaffolding life together and apart. Crosshatch, blow by, tug, spot, weld, and dry hole. Spawn D, give me a six. Plug, spackle, ream, spike, bevel, goose it. Run hogs in the four empties from Omaha. Punch out the baffles and grind the bead. Torque it down with a swivel socket and seat the gasket with an A12. Hand me the drive and hold this clamp on the gusset. Rab it a half-inch groove and match the claw. Blow the whistle, button her up, pack the bit, strap on the feed bag. Hungry, I could eat Jesus right off the cross. He was a carpenter. He'd understand. Again, Utah Phillips with Loafer's Glory in the studio with Steve Baker, the engineer, and that fine theme music, J- Jimmy Borsdorf and Nancy. That's an old, old hill tune. I'm still trying to figure out where it came from. I called it Loafer's Glory. Well, I was on the American ship Eagle. It's the American training ship that midshipmen uh, sail on. It's a sailing vessel. I was taken on as a shantyman there in Port Townsend, Washington. Me and Faith Petrick and Louis Killen, the great shantyman. Of course, the last of the living shantyman who'd been around the world many times under sail, a very, very old man named Stan Hugel. Stan sang and collected all of those old sea shanties. The work songs that you sang in order to make sure that everybody pulled on the rope at the same time. The long-haul shanties, the short-haul shanties, capstan shanties. I and love, it was the first time I'd ever been under sail. Um, the 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 American ship Eagle was coming into the port at Seattle for a tall ships festival, and I do not know Shanty One. I was born in a desert state. Water to me is extremely exotic. Water of any kind under any conditions. Well. And I was kind of uncomfortable uh, a bit being on the Eagle when the first mate uh, explained to me that the reason it was called the Eagle is because the figurehead, the Eagle figurehead, used to hold a wreath. And that was the uh, Nazi training ship that was taken uh, by the government after the Second World War. It was called the Horst Vessel at that time. Of course, Horst Vessel was a a Nazi martyr uh, long ago. Well, that made me feel right uncomfortable, and I was glad when I got off of it. But now... Stan Hugel and I sat in a bar there in Port Townsend, and he began to jawbone about his journeys. And uh, he had heard me sing, and singing all the old labor music and work and working songs. He said, "Well, it was back in about eighteen, about seventeen ninety four, that the Royal Navy decided they weren't going to sail the ships out of the harbor. They were berthed at Spithead in a place called the Nore in southern Britain. They weren't going to sail them because of the, of the impressment of seamen. You could be a beekeeper on your way into town to bring your goods, and the press gangs would pick you up. You were two, three years gone at sea, you know, and nobody knew where you were. Well, they objected to the whole 
rigid and inhumane system the way that the British Navy was run. So they decided not to sail the ships. So the ships couldn't sail. They brought the yard arms all the way down to the deck. They struck the yards. And as they decided to, decided to well, it swept through the whole fleet. You know, that decision that not to sail. And the, the, the cry went through the fleet, strike, 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 as all the yard arms came down to the deck. Stan Hugel told me that as near as he knows, it's the first use of the word strike. Let's listen to Stan. Now, this is on a ship that I was on down in San Francisco Harbor. We taught sea shanties. And on this one, it's he's doing the shanty while the, the uh, captain is turning and bringing in the anchor. You can hear the click of the pawls uh, in, in the capstan. This is um, uh, what's called a capstan shanty called Clear Away the Tack. Oh, such as pepper you can find. Ahoy, ho, are you most done? Here's the old man catch on the swan sail tide. Oh, clear and track, let the bulls around. Send me high, ready, dig in a lovely cloud. Ahoy, ho, are you most done? For the lies on the almighty. So then the word is ship the Pauls. Uh, it's, it's that, that I was hoping to have a chance to, to be able to play to you the real article, you know, the real article, not like you'd find in the book, but to hear it really being done. The first use of the word strike. Now, I was traveling through rural New Hampshire. I guess I've been playing at a place called the Stone Church down in the southern part. I stopped at one of the little wayside places and found uh, there were some recordings for sale that I'd never heard of. They were the Hutchison family singers. When I got to asking questions about them. The Hutchison family singers from New Hampshire go all the way back to the 1830s. They were a singing family, farmers, but they went all over the Northeast and, and other places to sing old abolitionist songs, to sing songs about uh, women's suffrage, about everything you can imagine, old uh, sentimental songs. Every generation has picked that up in the Hutchinson family. The current generation is called the tribe of Jesse. Now, I had always thought that the first strike 
of that name in the United States was down at Waltham, uh, Watch City, although there's some controversy around that. But now, looking into this uh, recording, I find that the first strike uh, was in Lynn, Massachusetts, among the shoemakers, or as they were called, cordwainers. So I've got the Hutchinson family singers using um, uh, an old Shaker Adventist tune, uh, singing the song of the cordwainers uh, from 1844, Lynn, Massachusetts. The cause of labor's gaining, the cause of labor's gaining, the cause of labor's gaining throughout the town of Lynn. Onward, onward, ye noble-hearted working men, onward, onward, and victory is yours. Arouse the working classes, arouse the working classes, arouse the working classes throughout the town of Lynn. Onward, onward, ye noble-hearted working men. Onward, onward, and victory is yours. Unite the free cordwainers, unite the free cordwainers. Unite the free cordwainers throughout the town of Lynn. Onward, onward, ye noble-hearted working men. Onward, onward, and victory is yours. The women to arise in the women to arise in the women to arise in throughout the town of Lynn. Onward, onward, ye noble-hearted working men. Onward, onward, and victory is yours. Let justice be our motto. Let justice be our motto. Let justice be our motto throughout the town of Lynn. Onward, onward, ye noble-hearted working men. Onward, onward, and victory is yours. There'll soon be joy and gladness. There'll soon be joy and gladness. There'll soon be joy and gladness throughout the town of Lynn. Onward, onward, ye noble-hearted working men. Onward, onward, and victory is yours. Cordwainer's song, the first strike in, in North America. Well, organizing went on all around. Uh, after the strike at Lynn, uh, in the railroad, the Philadelphia carpenters, the New England textile workers, the 10-hour movement, the Greenback Labor Party, the Grand Eight-Hour League, on and on and on. Uh, a story from old Charlie Davis, the town historian in uh, Oswego, New York. I used to play at the Water Street Cafe up there down by the water. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful place to play. But what a funky town, uh, Oswego, New York. Uh, Charlie Davis has passed away now. He was uh, sort of the town historian. He took me to see an enormous Celtic cross there in the burying ground outside of town. That was Father Barry's cross. A sort of legendary priest around there. Many, many, in the last century, uh, he took a papal uh, encyclical about the plight of labor seriously, got himself in a lot of trouble. The glassblowers over at Potsdam, New York, close by, were trying to organize against really miserable conditions, but there was no law of collective bargaining. None of the things we have now that we fought for and bled for and died for for all lowly's many years, they had to meet secretly in a little valley. Uh, outside Potsdam, and, and Father Barry helped to uh, arrange those meetings. There was a, a young fellow 
wrote him a letter, said he'd heard about that and would like to have a chance to visit, to see that. Well, Father Barry met him. He came to Oswego, and, yeah, he smuggled him out to one of those informal meetings in the valley of the, uh, where the glassblowers were, were trying to form a union. The young fellow left, and uh, a couple of months later, Father Barry got a letter. It said, uh, Dear Father Barry, you have shown me a whole new way of organizing American workers. And he signed it, Samuel Gompers. And, of course, Sam Gompers went on to, on to found the American Federation of Labor. But at the time, Sam Gompers was a member of the, of the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor was the first great mass-based uh, labor organization in the United States, founded in 1869 by Uriah Stevens and, uh, and six others. Mother Jones belonged to the, to the Knights of Labor. That was what really brought together, for the first time, the labor movement as a singing movement. And so many good songs came out of it that are, that are never recorded. Now, um, Hold the Fort has been recorded any number of times as a wobbly song or, and, and as a song which they attribute to the London transport workers. No, it started out many, many years before that as, uh, the, as Storm the Fort. Well, I found an old text of that, and I already knew the tune, so I, uh, I'll just sing it to you myself. And I was a little rude, and you know, I'm not a great singer, but like Jack Conroy said, I prefer a rude vigor to a polished banality. Storm the Fort. Toiling millions now are waking, see them marching on. All the tyrants now are shaking, ere their power is gone. Storm the fort, ye knights of labor, battle for your cause. Equal rights for every neighbor, down with tyrant laws. Lazy drones steal all the honey from hard labor's hives. Bankers control the nation's money and destroy our lives. Storm the fort, ye knights of labor, battle for your cause. Equal rights for every neighbor, down with tyrant laws. Do not load the worker's shoulder with an unjust debt. Do not let the rich bondholder live by blood and sweat. Storm the forty nights of labor, battle for your cause. Equal rights for every neighbor, down with tyrant laws. Why should those who fought for freedom wear old slavery's chains? Working folk will quickly break them when they use their brains. Storm the forty nights of labor, battle for your cause. Equal rights for every neighbor, down with tyrant laws. Can't you hear the full-throated war roar of a thousand workers singing that in a in a rented hall somewhere in Kansas City or out on the prairie? Yeah, it must have been wonderful. Well, Big Bill Haywood, Big Bill Haywood. Well, he's a he was a true American. I mean, his father rode for the Pony Express. His mother was a 49er on her way to the gold fields who dropped off in Salt Lake City, Utah, where, where uh, Big Bill Haywood was born. 
You can't, you don't get to be more American than that. He became a labor organizer, later on founder of the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, which is a union I belong to now for better than, than 40 years. The idea, well, let me tell you how he got the idea. Uh, he was working for the Western Federation of Miners there in Colorado. Uh, this is about 1903 or 1904. He saw that when they organized uh, uh, miners in the mine into one union and that the railroad people were organized into another union and that the smelter was organized into a third union, that if the mine went on strike, that they'd bring in scabs uh, to haul out scab ore, but then the union railroad would transport it to the union mill. That's called union scabbing, folks. Well, he said, what would it be like if everybody in the same industry belonged to the same union? What if the, the miners and the people who hauled the ore and the smeltermen all belonged to one metal miners industrial union? Same idea that if, uh, that if everybody that worked on the airline belonged to one industrial union, then you wouldn't have um, airline uh, flight attendants going on strike at one line but walking in on the job uh, at the next airline, even though they belonged to the same union. It never did make sense. And, of course, it was an idea bitterly opposed by the American Federation of Labor, by the AFL. Sam Gomper said, trade unionism, pure and simple. Uh, Big Bill Haywood was up there. This is a story I got from Jack Miller, an old wobbly, uh, back into the teens of this century. He's, he's gone now, but Jack Miller was a great teacher to me. He talked about Big Bill Haywood, oh, and the IWW was in so much trouble during the First World War, and his funds were impounded, leaders being jailed. Uh, Bill Haywood was under a charge of sedition, but he was the only supporter of the, of the Union Hall in Chicago through his public speaking. Bill Haywood believed in education. When they had the big Trinidad strike in Colorado, the Colorado Industrial Wars, he said that strike was won not just by the solidarity of the organized miners, but because we had a library of 5,000 books, and those miners read them, and they discussed among themselves at night what they were reading. Smart man. Bill Haywood was a smart man. Never unschooled, unlettered, but a very smart man. He said he was speaking up there in... Um, in uh, Milwaukee, a town that was hostile to him. The socialists were very hostile to the Wildies because they came out in favor of the First World War. Bill Haywood didn't have any money. He had sent it all to the Union Hall after a speaking engagement. He had to get back to Chicago somehow. He was walking past a construction site, saw a sign that said, Help Wanted. And he figured, well, I'm still pretty strong. Uh, he wasn't advancing years then, and not awfully well. But he said, I've done hard work all my life. He went in to get, get a job, temporary job. Well, it was an AFL site. You know, it was a, a craft union site, Carpenters. The foreman knew his name, knew, knew what he looked like. His face had been in the paper for years and years and decided to have some fun at Big Bill Haywood's expense. He said, well, this job, you've got to take an apprenticeship examination. Haywood said, all right, give it to me. He said, you got to know the difference between a joist and a girder. Haywood said, everybody knows that. That fellow said, yeah, but do you know that? Haywood said, yeah, joist wrote Ulysses and girder wrote Faust. Now give me the job. That industrial union movement, it spread over to Lawrence, Massachusetts from the great Lawrence textile strike when they organized power broke the back of the sweatshop system in North America. You know, that's why they had to move to third world countries to try to get away with the same stuff. Well, 
that was a long, long bitter strike. And, and, and opposed, the only unions that didn't go on strike were, again, the AFL, the craft, the skilled workers. These were mainly that were on strike, immigrant workers. Um, the song that came out of the, of the Bread and Roses strike, the Lawrence strike, was called Bread and Roses. Now, that's been recorded by a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But I met a young fellow from Sheffield, England, who went back home from our little town in Nevada City and sent me tape recordings of the Sheffield Socialist Choir. And you're going to listen to them sing Bread and Roses. It's quite a bit different from Full Monty, isn't it? <laughs> Bread and Roses. As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill of gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people hear us singing bread and roses. Sheffield Socialist Choir, and they have a whole festival over there, the Socialist Choir does. You know, the, the progressive movement was so much stronger in Britain like it was in Canada. It, it caved in um, a whole lot less than, uh, than the American left did uh, when, say, like uh, the repression of the left came along at the end of the Second World War. They were never intimidated or daunted by the word socialist or by the word communist. They were always legal parties uh, there and still are. Well, the great struggles in the 1920s, the early 1930s, took place in the coal fields of southwest uh, Virginia and West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee. They were organizing the, the National Mayan Union, they were the old NM, NMU, as an alternative to um, the, uh, the, the, the craft union, the, the coal miners union, UMWA. 
I had many good friends and great teachers to me that were involved in those struggles. Jim Garland, who wrote The Death of Harry Sims, himself a miner for many, many years during those times. Um, Florence Reese, I had a chance to meet Florence Reese, who's a very, very old woman. She wrote Which Side Are You On? I remember her husband, particularly Sam Reese. Sam Reese was a working miner. Sam would come home to that little cabin they lived in, all covered with coal dust and spitting up big gobs of, of black soot. He'd walk in the door, wouldn't say a word. He'd take an axe out from behind the door, and he'd sit down, pull out a small hone he reserved for just that occasion, and start to hone that axe. And after an appropriate silence, you'd ask Sam Reese, what are you doing that for, Sam? He said, this axe is to cut the heads off of the bosses after the revolution. The fellow was real centered, you understand. The one I loved working with the most, because she was so mild and yet so powerful, was a woman by the name of, of uh, Sarah Ogan Gunning. Sarah Ogan Gunning's people had worked in the mines for years and years and years under the most repressive kinds of conditions. Well, I'll let Sarah Ogan Gunning speak for herself. These are her words. I was a coal miner's daughter and a coal miner's wife, and I lived in southwestern Kentucky the biggest part of my life. In some of the mines, he had to work for so long and load so many tons of coal before he was allowed to even rent one of them old company houses. They was just what you'd call a shack now. Even when you worked at the best coal mines, what little money you made, they paid you in script, and you had to spend it at the company store. Everything cost at least three times as much as it would if you could go downtown to shop, but you wasn't allowed to do that. Men could go to the mines and work for maybe $2 a day and then have to buy a lot of their own equipment. By the time he got through that, well, he was lucky to draw a dollar and strip. You can't imagine how much you could get for it at the company store. In the early 30s, I had one of my babies starve to death. It, it literally happened. People starved to death. Not only my own baby, but the neighbor's babies, too. You, you see them starve to death, too, and all you could do is to go over and help wash and dress them and lay them out and sit with the mothers until they could put them away. That and the other things that happened in my life is what I composed the songs about, these hardships I went through in Kentucky mountains, and not just me, but a lot of other people, too. Here's Sarah Ogan Gunning herself singing, Come All You Coal Miners. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be, and listen to, to a story that I'll relate to thee. My name is nothing extra, but the truth to you I'll tell. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. Coal mining is the most dangerous work in our land today. With plenty of dirty slaving work and very little pay. Coal miner, won't you wake up and open your eyes and see? What the dirty capitalist system is doing to you and me. They take your very lifeblood, they take our children's lives. Take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. 
Oh, minor, won't you organize wherever you may be and make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. Dear minor, they will slave you till you can't work no more. And what'll you get for your living but a dollar in a company store? A tumble-down shack to live in, snow and rain pours in the top. You have to pay the company rent, your paying never stops. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. Let's sink this capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell. back again. I got to admit that that was kind of a an interesting and probably inappropriate segue from uh, Sir Logan Gunning talking about sinking the capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell and then Blind Kenny Hall playing, uh, uh, I guess it was a stone rag. Uh, nonetheless, we are back with you again. I after that, the coal mine struggles slid right into the Great Depression, and oh, it was a terrible, terrible time of suffering. That's when I was born in the, was in the midst of the Great Depression. Uh, had a, a friend lived up the road from me out there in Bergeron Lane. I live on the edge of town by the name of Bill Giggler. He talked about the early Depression. He was a very, very old man. He used to walk into town every day with a long white beard and a high-peaked hat. Um, he said that back back when he was trying to raise chickens full time and, and make a go of it, they were so he was so poor he couldn't pay heed. That's poor. Bill Giggler gave up raising chickens uh, in the early depression. The price of his feed was too high. The price of the electric electric light bulbs to keep the the cribs warm uh, it was too high. But he knew somebody was making money off of them eggs, and it wasn't him. That canny old man did his own independent market study. He took an indelible pencil, licked the end of it, and on the side of an egg he wrote, uh, To whom it may concern, I just sold this egg for a nickel. I'd be appreciated if you'd write me and tell me how much you paid for it, put his name and address on there, and sent it out with a batch. 
Well, he said it was six months later he got a letter in the United States mail from the United States Department of Agriculture on their own stationery. He said it was beautiful stationery. And that letter said, Dear Mr. Gigler, I've been asked by the, by the Secretary of Agriculture to inform you that while delivering a speech to the farmers of Kansas, he received your egg for nothing. Let's listen to an old Depression favorite now, written and recorded by blind Alfred Reed, a song called How Can a Poor Man Stand Such Times and Live? <laughs> Everything was cheap But now prices almost put some lamb to sleep When we pay our grocery bill We just feel like making our will Tell me how can a poor man stand such times and live I remember when dry goods were cheap as dirt We could take two bits and buy a dandy shirt now we pay three bucks or more Maybe get a shirt that another man wore Tell me how can a poor man stand such times and live? Well, I used to trade with a man by the name of Bray Flour was 50 cents for a 24-pound bag now it's a dollar and a half beside, just like skin and a plea for the hide. Tell me, how can a poor man stand such times and live? Oh, the schools we have today ain't worth a cent, but they see to it that every child is sin. If we don't send every day, we have a penny fine to pay. Tell me, how can a poor man stand such times and live? Good if kids conducted right. There's no sense in shooting a man till he shows fight. Officers kill without a cause and come clear what money laws. Tell me how can a poor man stand such times and live? Most of preachers preach for dough and not the soul. That's what keeps a poor man always in a hole. Can't hardly get our breath Packs and stood and preach to death Tell me how can a poor man Stand such times and live Oh, it's time for every man To be awake We pay 50 cents a pound When we ask for stay When we get our package home Got a little water paper With gristle and bone Tell me how can a poor man stand such times and live? Well, the doctor comes around with a face so bright And he says in a little while you'll be all right All he gives is a humbug pill No soft dose and a great big bill Tell me how can a poor man stand such times and live? How can a poor man stand such times and live? Now, you tell me that song, for the most part, 
could have been written yesterday or today as far as that goes. So many of the same things that he's talking about in 1933 or 34 are exactly the way that they are today. Well, uh, and, and why? Yes, the question I'd ask is, is why? Well, now, I was up in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Not, not, it was a while back. There's some friends up there who had been trying to get me to record the songs and stories of the Wobblies for many years, and I never wanted to do it until I could get people together who really knew what those songs were about. Well, the communication workers uh, were on strike up there because uh, they had, hadn't had a contract for two years. They were on strike against a parent company, which was Connecticut General Telephone, wouldn't you know? But now... Before they had to hit the bricks, they realized that the management had moved so many people over the management line into the employee line that they could run the exchanges. You know, they could run the exchanges. So um, it didn't make any sense to go out on strike if they could keep the exchanges open. So instead, they occupied the exchanges. And for two weeks, they answered the phone in the name of the union instead of the name of the company. Of course, then the court got the injunction, and they were forced out of the buildings, and that's, uh, that's when the picketing began. That tactic of sitting down when you realize that if you leave the plant, you're going to get locked out, they're going to bring in the scabs, um, at, of the sit-down strike, that was pioneered in the strike to, that organized uh, uh, the Ford plant in the early 1930s. My mother was involved in the, in the sit-down strikes. She was at work for the CIO. Uh, there were a lot of good songs that came out of that. By the way, you know, when I think about the trouble that the TAs in the, in the college systems, especially here in California where I live, are having to organize, you understand, to, to get together with other bargaining units to create some sense of solidarity. It might be that they probably ought to think about the tactics of the sit-down strike instead of picketing on the sidewalk in front of the campus is to occupy some of the buildings, occupy some of the classrooms. You think about it. It worked before. There's no reason why it can't work again. Marie Sugar great labor lawyer, founder of the National Lawyers Guild, represented every strong union uh, during the 1920s, 1930s. Maurice Sugar would go away to a hunting camp up in the upper peninsula of Michigan and um, to get away from the heat for a little while, to just get away from the struggle. And it was during those times he would now and then pen a good song. He wrote one of the great sit-down strike songs. It's called Sit Down. <laughs> Sit down, 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 sit down
Sit Down, the Sit Down Strikes. That, of course, was a song of the CIO. The CIO was built around the same idea as the IWW. It reared its head again, the idea of industrial unionism, once again bitterly fought by the American Federation of Labor. It's only during the McCarthy times after the Second World War that the CIO was forced to divest itself of all of its radicals and to become uh, allied with the American Federation of Labor. But it was a great singing movement. All the way up during the Second World War, uh, the CIO, all organized workers cooperated with the war effort because it was the war against fascism. It was the war against Hitler, the war against Mussolini. And, of course, then the government embraced the labor movement because they were willing to sign no-strike agreements during the duration of the war. That was when the Almanac Singers started. Uh, Almanac House, Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Lee Hayes, uh, uh, a whole bunch of them, uh, Lord Invader from Jamaica, Josh White. Well, sing you, I will give you one of those songs from the Almanac Singers and about their participation in the war effort. This isn't the kind of song that you normally hear or would normally expect to come out of uh, a radical movement like the Almanac Singers, uh, like the progressive movement, but here it is. It's uh, a Woody Guthrie song sung by the Almanac Singers called UAW-CIO. I was hanging around a defense town one day. One day. When I thought I overheard a soldier say. Soldier say. Every tank in my camp has that UAW stamp. And I'm UAW too, I'm proud to say. It's that UAW CIO makes that army roll and go. Turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAW CIO makes that army roll and go. Puts wheels on the USA. I was there when the Union came to town. Came to town. I was there when old Henry Ford went down. Ford went down. I was standing by gate four when I heard the people roar. They ain't gonna kick the auto workers around. It's that UAW-CIO makes the army roll and go. Turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAW-CIO makes the army roll and go. Puts wheels on the USA. I was there on that cold December day, December day, when we heard about Pearl Harbor far away, far away. I was down in Cadillac Square when the Union rallied there to put those plans for pleasure cars away. It's that UAW-CIO makes the army roll and go, turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAW-CIO makes that army roll and go, puts wheels on the USA. There'll be a Union label in Berlin. In Berlin. When the Union boys in uniform march in. March in. And rolling in the ranks, there'll be UAW tanks. Roll Hitler out and roll the Union in. It's that UAW-CIO makes that army roll and go. Turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAW-CIO makes that army roll and go. Well, there you have it. Yes, it was organized labor that fought and helped to win the Second World War, that built the Union, but through their struggle gave us mine safety laws, child labor laws, uh, the right of collective bargaining, all the things, the eight-hour day, the things you take for granted today. Of course, with the coming of the Cold War uh, and the blacklists and the House on american Activities Committee, uh, 
and people going to jail uh, without ever being accused of a crime, the roof kind of fell in on the progressive movement. The songs began to change. Here's one that came out of that about 1953. Betty Saunders, who was a member of People's Song, singing In Contempt. Contempt, Betty Saunders. She taught over at Sonoma State College, good friend of, of Kate Wolf's before she passed away. I wouldn't want to leave things on a negative note like that. Uh, the songs are still being written. The song makers are still there. The labor movement stirs back into life as it has so many times before. We started out with the fight for the eight-hour day, and let's end that way. Uh, fairly new song by Charlie King. We mean to make things over. We are tired of toil for naught. With but bare enough to live upon and ne'er an hour for thought. We want to see the sunshine. We want to smell the flowers. We are sure that God has willed it and we mean to have eight hours. We're summoning our forces from shipyard, shop, and mill. Eight hours for work. Eight hours for rest. Eight hours for what we will. Eight hours for work. Eight hours for rest. Eight hours for what we will. My job makes me crazy, I'm always behind Even though I am not one to shirk And some fuzzy folk singer repeats in my mind That my life should be more than my work 
well, I like the work that I do. I don't mind earning my pay, but there's so much to do when the workday is through. Bring back the eight-hour day. Say you work at a white-collar job. You get paid at a fixed monthly rate, but you come in for meetings a half hour early. You're working a full hour late. Then you sit for an hour in traffic with the rest of the overtime drones. There's a latchkey kid you must chase off to bed for you eat a cold supper alone. Oh. Bring back the eight-hour day. When did we give it away? There's so much to do when the workday is through. Bring back the eight-hour day. There's a factory worker we know. Joe Hill called him Mr. Block. If the foreman forgot him, he'd work till he dropped, and he'd never punch out on the clock. Now they lay off ten workers a week. Some are working half time with no frills. Mr. Block doesn't care; he's got money to spare. Let the rest of the world go to hell. Well, did you know that the workers in Flint? Went on strike to climb out of this hole, where half the town works sixty hours a week, while the other half rots on the dole. What good is a double time check when your town and your family is shot? We need some enjoyment. We want full employment. We will not be bullied or bought. We say, bring back. The eight-hour day. When did we give it away? There's so much to do when the workday is through. Bring back the eight-hour day. When I was a kid, mom stayed home, and we lived on dad's blue-collar pay. Our standard of living was decent and sweet. Just as good as what I've got today. Now my wife has a good-paying job, and me, well, I'm doing okay. But we're putting out 99 hours a week. Tell me who the hell's getting my pay? Hey, bring back the eight-hour day. When did we give it away? There's so much to do when the workday is through. Bring back the eight-hour day. They got cellular phones for your car. They got notebook PCs for your lap. If you crawl off to sleep, you stay close to your beeper. Now why do we stand for this crap? They tell you you gotta compete. Now we're tired from footing the bill. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. A hundred and ten years ago, 
in Chicago in Haymarket Square. They gathered from shipyard, from mine and from mill, just a march in the sun and the air. They'd been slaving from dawn until dusk, but not on the first of May. Cause you can't smell the flowers when you're working 12 hours. So they struck for an eight hour day. Hey, bring back that eight hour day. Bring back the five day week. When did we give it away? How'd it become an antique? I like the work that I do. I don't mind earning my pay. But there's so much to do when the workday is through. Bring back the eight-hour day. Thanks so much for sharing this time with me. You've been remarkably forbearing and showed great patience with me. I didn't get through half of what I wanted to get through, but I'll, I'll take care of that later. In the future, I want to play you a program of new labor music. Uh, I took my little tape recorder around to picket lines all over the country, and as I've traveled, and I picked up a lot of new labor music. And then I want to do a, play for you an interview with Pete Seeger that I did, and he's going to sing songs and tell stories about the history of the people's song movement. This is Utah Phillips, and you've been listening to Loafer's Glory, the Hobo Jungle of the Mind. The old guy sets the record straight, by yours truly. I have been told for the last time that the collapse of the Berlin Wall is the collapse of the left. I have been in the left all of my life, as were my mother and the teachers I found among my elders. The wall they assailed was not built out of mere stone. It was built out of greed and ignorance and exploitation. Until that wall falls, nothing has changed. ¶¶ 